Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Romans once more and the chapter 7. The book of Romans and the chapter 7. We enter into the chapter at the beginning and we're going to read down through the end of verse 6. Romans in the chapter 7, beginning our reading at the verse 1 and continuing then down to the end of verse 6. The Word of God says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth, but if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, She shall be called an adulteress, but if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motion of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the latter. Amen. And so reads the word of the Lord. As we come to consider what's before us this morning, we do so, of course, continuing our thoughts around the theme of rubies from Romans. And as we entered into this short study, we identified three encouraging truths as we entered into this great book. We remembered, of course, that we are exhorted to patiently continue, to stick at it, and to remain faithful in our service and devotion to the Lord and to His work. We remembered, of course, as well that promise that there is much more even that the Lord would have us to know and much more blessing to receive from the hand of the Lord. And so we were encouraged. We were uh, even built up in our opening considerations in this book. But as we came then to consider the four button eyes that we're going to give ourselves to, uh, even in the middle part of this study, we looked at the button eye of freedom reminding ourselves, just as we are reminded here again this morning, that we have been delivered from the captivity and from the bondage of sin. We have been delivered even from the obligations of the law. We have been liberated and we know freedom in Jesus Christ our Lord. And then last week we considered the button eye of fruit, having been delivered having been set free, having known the reality of that but-now moment in our experience here on earth, we are to be those who then bring forth fruit onto the praise and onto the glory of our great God. We ended last week by noting, of course, that as we abide in Christ, that is the secret to fruit-bearing. That fruit-bearing is not something we in and of ourselves do. No, it's simply that supernatural work of God as we abide in Jesus Christ. And so last week, and indeed the week before, we were more exhorted from the Word of God rather than perhaps encouraged. But nevertheless, as we come to God's Word, we must, of course, remember that the Word of God is that which builds us up and encourages us, no doubt, but it's also that which exhorts us to look within and to consider our own lives in light of the Word of God. 
And so once more, as we come to another but now statement that is found here in this book, we do so recognizing, identifying that there's more exhortation to be found in this passage and indeed in this verse. And so as we reflect on those opening six verses here before us, we see the building upon once more, do we not? How that each of these but now statements build one upon another, opening our hearts and the understanding of our minds to the great truth of what God is trying to solidify in our understanding. These but now statements are really doctrinal truths, that which allows us to fully comprehend the breadth and the scope of all that is delivered to us. As Paul writes about the matter of our salvation, that transformation that has been affected because of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So yes, it's undoubtedly a challenging message. Yes, it's undoubtedly a message which encourages, exhorts us to introspection once again. But nevertheless, I trust that as we even hear the words of the Lord today, that we will be encouraged. We will be built up. As you reflected then upon last week, how was your reflection on your nearness and fellowship with Christ? For that's really the theme of all that we come to consider today. As we looked at the but now of freedom, as we looked at the but now of fruit bearing, we come to consider the but now of fellowship. It's an important theme. It's a theme really that unlocks the full meaning of salvation. Completes our understanding of all that God has done in us. Allows us full and complete entrance into all that he has prepared for us. So you might be saying, well, the theory is correct. But how do I apply all that we've been considering? How may I in my own life, my own walk, produce that fruit and see that fruit produced onto the glory of God? Well, notice there at the end of verse 6, a little phrase that testifies to the fellowship that we enjoy. And the fellowship which reassures us that as we grow in our faith and as we work at our walk, then that fruit bearing will naturally follow. Paul refers to it as being the newness of spirit. The newness of spirit. And you and I identify quite rightly a newness of life as we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The old nature dies as we know that what it is to be cleansed in the precious blood. We are a new creature. All things pass away. Behold, all things become new for all who are in Christ. But this newness of life that is so easily and readily identified is, of course, but a direct result of what happens the moment we confess our sins. The instant we turn in believing faith to Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then we know what it is to be quickened by the Holy Spirit. Our inner man is regenerated. Come across to Ephesians in the chapter 2, a well-known passage of Scripture, but something which sheds a little light on all that we are seeking to share It tells us there, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, 
When in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Notice there the word spirit. Remember, the theme that we're considering this morning is that fellowship that we enjoy with Jesus Christ, all because of a newness of spirit. So there immediately we identify, and Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, an old spirit. The spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience. Those who know what it is to live lives that are outside of what God commands. Displeasing to God in all that is said, all that is done. Lives that we all lived once in our own journey here upon earth. We knew what it was in ourselves to have that spirit of disobedience. It says, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And whereby nature the children of wrath, even as others, but, but God. Remember, this is all but now, and here we're, we are reminded that all that has happened, this but now experience of our lives is why? Because God has worked in us. God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together. By grace you are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And here the apostle is reminding the church at Ephesus, he's reminding us as he pens these words under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of all that has occurred in our lives the very moment that we came to salvation. That which once was a reality is now no longer a reality. Why? Because we knew what it was in that very moment to be quickened by the Holy Spirit of God himself. That newness of spirit entered in. That old nature was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I once lived in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Come across one chapter in Romans, two Romans in the chapter 8. Because here we're reminded of the same thing, are we not? Romans in the chapter 8 and the verse 11, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Friend, there is the reality that we all must rejoice in, that we all must fully comprehend and understand that when we came to salvation, yes, we knew forgiveness of sins, Yes, we knew new life in Jesus Christ, but in that very moment it all happened. Why? Because we received a newness of spirit. We were quickened in the inner man. And so as we are set free because of our salvation, as we are to bear fruit in our lives because of our salvation, Paul now communicates the truth that this is no longer just down to us. But rather we can bask in our freedom and we can bear our fruit all because of this new spirit, none other than the Holy Spirit of God himself. 
Paul has only referenced the Holy Spirit once in this epistle thus far. Chapter 5 and the verse 5. But mentioning it here in chapter 7, he begins a theme that he carries on right through into chapter 8. He begins to communicate great teaching about the Holy Spirit of God and all that it means to the true believer. And this key teaching of Bible doctrine is today ignored by some, misrepresented by others. But I submit to you that it's misunderstood by the majority. So we come together around the Word of God. Know this, your salvation depended upon the work of the Holy Spirit. He it was who convicted you and brought you to that understanding of your sinfulness. He it was who regenerates you and baptized you into the family of God. I know, yes, Christ paid the price and will come to the table in just a few moments and remember that great cost of our salvation, the price that was paid so that you and I could be termed the sons and the daughters of God, but understand that the Holy Spirit of God provided the power in salvation. It was who liberated us from sin. He it was who then placed us in the family of God. He it is who seals us until that eternal day that we shall be truly reunited even with Christ in the splendors above. And once again, this is all further proof if we needed it. That our salvation involved the work of the Trinity in unity. So this morning, under three simple headings, three insights into the work and person of the Holy Spirit, the one who produces that newness of spirit, the one who is the epitome of our fellowship with Jesus Christ. Let us consider all that we can learn even from this passage today. Let us notice, first of all, number one, teaching. Teaching. Come to chapter 8. We're dwelling in chapter 8 for the next few moments together. Chapter 8 and the verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son, the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse 1 is truly a great truth to rejoice in. You and I come into the presence of God today and there's no condemnation. No condemnation. No one can lift the charge against us. Why? Because Christ simply raises his nail-pierced hands and says, their sin and their sorrow I carried in my own body on the tree. I paid the price by the shedding of my own blood. There's no charge that sticks. Why? Because as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. The very law that is revealed to us in the Word of God has no claim, no hold over us. Why? Because we are justified. We are set free from the law, oh, happy condition. Perhaps you're with us today and you cannot testify of such a moment. The law does condemn you. 
As you come into the courtroom of God today, you stand guilty as charged. Well, know that that no longer needs to be the case. Why? Because Christ provides eternal and free salvation for all who will believe. So why remain under the sentence of condemnation? Why remain under the sentence of death? Why allow the the law to have such a hold over you? Will you not come to know the Son? Will you not come to believe in the Son for whom the Son sets free? He is free indeed. Well, turn to the Savior today if that is you. Hear the pleas of the gospel and accept the invitation and come and know freedom that which we have already dwelt upon. But that's a great truth given to us, and it rejoices the heart of every true believer. There's no condemnation as we gather together in the sight of God today. All because, remember, as verse 3 identifies, Jesus Christ came, he gave himself a sacrifice for sin. Now being free, we live to fulfill that which we are called to do. According to verse 4, we live lives which testify of him. All because, remember, the spirit within. And so our freedom is in view, that which we've already considered. But notice in verses 5 through 13, our fruit is in view also. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh. For ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Here he's speaking very much about the two realities. Remember, Paul identified at the end of chapter uh, 6 last week, what fruit had ye there for? And the things were off ye are now ashamed. In the old nature there was nothing that testified of fruit bearing. All it was was that sentence of death, eternal death and condemnation. That's why he ended verse six, or chapter 6 by saying, for the wages of sin is death. But now in Christ we are made alive. As the Spirit dwells in us, as the Spirit reigns in us, as we are led and guided and directed by the Spirit of God, then He who quickened us also allows us to enjoy the full vitality of what it means to be in Christ, the full vitality of what it means to walk after the Spirit, and that is apparent. Why? Because the things that are manifested in our lives, the fruit that is produced as Christ works in us, testifies that we are the children of God. Supernatural work of spiritual fruit-bearing occurs as you and I dwell in the Spirit and allow that newness of Spirit to be seen in all that we say and all that we do. 
Life and peace is what he testifies of in verse 6. Life, living a life well-pleasing unto God in verse 8. Righteousness indeed as we bear the very garments and wear the very garments of the righteousness of Christ. So we seek to live unspotted from this world, undefiled in a wicked and a corrupt generation. And so his teaching about the Holy Spirit reminds us of our freedom. It brings very sharply into view the truth of spiritual fruit bearing, the, the great contrast between the old nature of the flesh, the new nature of dwelling in Christ. Notice in verse 14 to 17, also then our family is in view. For we, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The reality of what it means to be a child of God is in view. Why? Because of the work of the Spirit. We're now part of a family to which we did not naturally belong. We've come in and knowing the full rights of being a son, being an heir, being a joint heir with Christ. The toga for Elias is ours to wear. Why? Because God seen fit to adopt us into his family by the finished work of Christ and by even that work of the Holy Spirit in our individual lives and situations. So the teaching that Paul brings about the Spirit highlights to us the significance of all that we have been considering. But now, that contrast between the old way of life, the old realities of life, the contrast then to all that God has done in us, even by the work of the Spirit, as we have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But notice the testifying work of the Spirit. Not only teaching, but testifying. That's given to us there in the verse 16 that we've already read together. The Spirit itself beareth witness. So we see here in this verse very clearly that a work of the Spirit within. It's not only to remind us of all the truth that we've already been considering, the freedom, the fruit bearing, and the adoption into the family of God, but he also testifies to the reality that we are the children of God. He it is who testifies to us. He it is who testifies in us. Now, we also are reminded in Romans in the chapter 8 that he it is who testifies with us, confirming, reaffirming that we are those who have been transformed by his work, those who have been set free. Notice how that, that spirit, that testimony, allows us then to come confidently and boldly before the throne of grace. Come down to verse 25. It says, But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will 
of God. And so as the Spirit of God testifies with us that we are the children of God, it also helps us to understand the importance then of prayer and indeed the great privilege of prayer. Prayer is an awesome task. It is a task beyond us. But thank God here we are reminded that the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. Many there are who say, I cannot pray. I struggle to pray. Whenever I come to pray, perhaps it's in an audible fashion, perhaps it's in an inaudible fashion, your mind clams up. The words won't flow. Satan wars against you. Distractions enter in. We perhaps come before the Lord, but we struggle to exhibit the faith that as we ask, he will deliver. Nevertheless, the word of God reminds us here, despite the reality that prayer is a hard work. Prayer is something that, yes, takes effort, takes diligence, takes a patient, continuing attitude to come time after time, over and over again, before the throne of grace and prayer. Nevertheless, the Spirit of God is He who testifies with us. We are the children of God. And as He testifies, He's helping our infirmities as we come before God, accessing the great throne of heaven. Why? Because we have a right of access in and through what God has done in Jesus Christ for us. To think that as we pray, the Spirit of God literally comes alongside and helps us. We all know what it is to provide help to others or perhaps to see help provided to us. And it's a comforting thing. It's a reassuring thing. It's something that is most certainly needed from time to time in all of our lives. Practical, literal help overcome. And yet this is what the Spirit does continually for us. Helping us come before God and lay our wants and petitions before Him. Not only does He help our infirmities, but He communicates on our behalf. We know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He it is who communicates truly what is upon our hearts. The depth of feeling, the depth of emotion. He it is who translates, as it were, all that is heavy upon our hearts whenever you and I can't find the words. We know what it is to translate perhaps for little children, the toddlers. They struggle to make themselves heard. They struggle, well, they don't struggle to make themselves heard, let's be honest about it, but they struggle to make themselves be understood. There's always somebody in the house who is an effective translator of the little sayings that come from their lips, able to shine a little light on what is required in that moment. Well, that is exactly what's in view here when it comes to the Holy Spirit. You and I struggle from time to time, especially in times of great need, great sorrow, to effectively communicate and articulate our need. But yet the Spirit knoweth what's upon our heart. And He it is who presents it before the Father. He it is who testifies with us that yes, we're the children of God, and as the children of God, here's the need. 
here's the burden. Here's the sorrow. Verse 27 tells us the reassurance that we can have. Because at the end of verse seven, it tell, or 27, it tells us there that he maketh intercession according to the will of God. So that which he presents to the Father in our behalf is that which is according to the will of God. Sometimes we ask for things, don't we? But we ask amiss. Sometimes we identify the need, but it's not the greatest need. Sometimes you and I come and we only pray from one aspect or one angle. But the Spirit perfects that which we bring. We're not condemned before the Father, no. We're represented before the Father. And He prayeth, He maketh intercession for you, for me, according to the will of God. Why? Oh, because as God searches our heart, he knows. He knows that the Spirit is he who knoweth, has upon his mind that which we most desperately require. And so, friend, this morning, take comfort. Yes, there's great teaching to be had in the Word of God about what the Spirit has done, what he continues to do on our behalf. But there's also great comfort to know that there is one who testifies with us who bears our burdens before the Lord. Here we are facing life with all of its struggles, its ups and downs, its toils and its troubles. Very often we struggle to pray. Very often we struggle to know what to pray. Very often we struggle to believe that our prayers will be heard, but yet through the word of God we are reminded there is one who testifies with us before the Father, who helps us and who presents our prayers even before the very throne of grace itself. Teaching, testifying, but notice with me thirdly, transforming. The work of the Spirit is a transforming work. It truly changes the reality of our lives. It tells us in verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is God that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress persecution or famine or nakedness or pearl or sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice 
First one, no condemnation. Notice here at the end of the passage, no separation. Verse 35, and the transforming work of the Spirit of God is not only theological and doctrinal in truth, but it's very practical in truth also. Whenever we come to the Lord for salvation, we are filled with the Spirit of God. I've been asked the question many times, how can I know the filling of the Spirit of God? If you're a believer, you have as much of the Holy Spirit that you will ever have. You were filled at the very moment of salvation. But the reality is that as we journey through life and as we seek to live more and more for the glory of God, we come to this understanding that there's more that the Spirit of God could have of us. We could live lives more yielded to Him, more devoted to Him, more dedicated to Him. And so this morning as we come to consider the transforming work of the Spirit of God, we're not asking how we can be even filled in greater ways with the Spirit of God, but rather how the Spirit of God can truly and clearly work through us. Oh yes, there's that empowerment of God in the moment for special acts of service, for witnessing. There's no doubt about it. But day by day, consistently living before men and women, boys and girls in this world, how can we know to live lives that are even more uh, testifying of the truth that we are filled with the Spirit of God? It's by understanding the transforming work that He does by yielding ourselves day and daily to him. As I thought about this and as I reflected upon it, there was two ways really to deliver that truth. Simply by reaffirming all that the word of God says and giving it in type form. Or we could point to a practical truth, a practical example of all that the Word of God is seeking to convey here. And so come to Acts in the chapter 6, because I believe in the, in, the man, in the life of a man here, we see all that the Word of God would have us to know about the transforming work that the Spirit does in each of our hearts, can do in each of our lives. Acts in the chapter 6, we know a dispute, dissension has arisen within the church. It's dealt with very delicately and indeed very circumspectly by the apostles on that time. It tells us in verse 1, in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in a daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not the reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on him. And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. 
Here we see in this passage a man whose life had been transformed by the Spirit of God. His name's Stephen. The character of Stephen is given to us in the verse 3. Honest, full of the Holy Ghost. In verse 5, full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. In verse 8, full of faith and power. Verse 15, they saw in his face as it had been the face of an angel. Here was a man who stood out. And yes, identified to us are a number who took up office in the early New Testament church. And notice very clearly here that a prerequisite for any office bearing is to be filled with the Spirit of God. Any office bearer who seeks to serve God in a way which is honoring to God should do so in the power of the Spirit. May God grant that we continue to know men like that here. You see, this wasn't a man who stood out because he was a good guy. Too many in Christendom today, too many even in churches like ours today, sadly, even too many amongst office bearers in churches like ours today want to be a good guy. He didn't stand out because of who he was. He stood out because of what was evident in his life. It was the Spirit of God. It was a transformation that was clear to all that God had changed him. He was described as being a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, a man of honest report, a man of wisdom. Verse 8, it tells us that he was full of faith and power. You see, the faith was a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in him and through him as he boldly took his stand. But the power of God was that which enabled him to last the course. It was that which enabled him to do day after day, time after time, all that it took to be a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. Friend, today, if you're here and if you know what it is to be saved, then you too know what it is. To, you need to know what it is to yield your life unto him so that continually he can transform you and fill you not only with faith, but with power. It's a power that will enable you to stand firm whenever all is against you. We can bemoan the circumstances of this generation. We can bemoan the circumstances of this day. But I tell you that the circumstances of this generation and the circumstances of this day are not an attack because we are men of faith and power. They're simply our just reward for being negligent in the same. We need to be those who are filled with faith. We need to be those who are evidently transformed by the Spirit of God, who not only testify that they are the children of God, but as men and women look upon their lives, they say, there goes a man of God. There goes a woman who knows God. There goes a young person who lives with God and who lives in the reality of living consciously in his presence. I tell you, power is what is needed to stand in this generation whenever everybody would take the hand out of you. Whenever everybody would mock you and scorn you and seek to belittle you for your faith in Christ, we need to be people who are filled with the power of the Spirit of God. That power made Stephen stand out. But that power 
meant that he stood out to the end. Come across one chapter to the end of chapter 7. His service, his business has got him in trouble. He's now delivered a message even unto those who would mock him and accuse him. Religious. People of the law. People of the book. Whenever he delivered the truth of the gospel, whenever he lived a life of faith and a life that demonstrated the power of God in him, it tells us when they heard those things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran with him, ran upon him with one accord. Cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their coats at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. They stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. There was a man who had the power of the Holy Ghost resting upon him. So much so that he became the first martyr. He paid the price. But I want to not focus upon the price that he paid, but the reward that he received. Because the Bible tells us that as he's there, facing that mob, knowing the stones raining down upon him, that he lifted his eye to heaven. And he saw the Son of God standing. My Bible tells me that when Christ finished the work, he sat down at the Father's right hand. But yet, very clearly here, Stephen saw him standing. I could be entirely wrong about this, but I believe with all of my heart that the Son of God is standing. Why? Because he's getting ready to welcome a man who lived the Christian life home who demonstrated to one and all that he was a child of God, who there was no question as to who he was, to whose servant he was. And in my mind, I see all of heaven pausing because the son who was sat down just a few moments ago is standing to his feet to welcome the first martyr home. He extends the hand. And he says, Stephen, well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness is a word that we bandy about because we think we have the right to describe somebody as being faithful. But faithful is something that is only ever determined by God. Are you faithful today? Are you someone who lives your life in the demonstration and power of the Holy Ghost? Is it a reality that your but now moment has resulted in uninterrupted fellowship with Jesus Christ through the Spirit? I trust that it's not just teaching for you. I just trust that it's not just the assurance of testifying for you. 
But I trust that for all of us, it's the experience of being transformed and living for him in this day and in this generation. May God bless his word to our hearts today. I'm going to close by singing, Come thy fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. in prayer and if you're not willing for the table feel free to leave after I pray then Father we want to rejoice in all that thou hast done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray that thou hast blessed us and help us in all that we seek to do for thee help us to live lives that are yielded to thee and help the spirit of God to have more and more control over our lives each and every day oh help us and aid us we pray we're thankful for one who prays with us and for us we ask you Lord that thou hast help us to live in the light of what it means to be a believer and to rejoice in the freedom that we have through the work that Christ accomplished there on Calvary's cross. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.